All right, well, if you have been with us over the past several weeks, we have been working our way through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are these series of eight statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And they are really descriptive of a Christian. He's really describing um, what, it, what, what will be in evidence in a believer. And uh, it is full of words that require definition. And so uh, forgive me if you've been with us all the previous weeks and you've already heard this, but if you're new, I don't want to sound high and churchy sounding and therefore alienate you. Uh, beatitude is just simply a word meaning supreme blessedness or happiness. Blessed, the word for blessed, which every one of the Beatitudes begins with that word blessed, is the Greek word makarios, which simply means happy. I, I tend to think most um, English speakers, most English translations have happened upon the word blessed instead of happy, largely because King, the King James Version first put blessed there at the beginning, and it's a much beloved passage, it's often memorized, and so subsequent generations have just maintained that blessed. What's interesting is that English speakers at the time of King James, blessed and happy were interchangeable. They were really roughly synonymous, and so uh, you could do no violence to the text at all if you said, for example, our text for this morning, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that is our text for this morning. In the previous weeks, we have covered the, the three previous Beatitudes, in which Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we learned in that week that poor in spirit means that you live in a state of needy reliance on God. There is nobody in heaven who has not come to a place where they have confessed their needy reliance on God. And then we talked the next week about blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And that idea of mourning and comforting is those people who have been taught or come to understand that they should grieve their sinfulness, grieve this fallen, broken order of things. Blessed are those who mourn when they look within and they see these misshapen, disordered desires and they grieve over it. And then he went on, last week we talked about, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And now this week we come to the fourth beatitude, which will mark the halfway point through our series. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now these beatitudes naturally follow one another. Jesus' order in which he's saying these things is not haphazard or scattershot at all. There is a very logical flow to what Jesus is saying here. Uh, and, and we can see this in a couple different areas as we come to this particular one. Uh, one is that repentance is a twin turning. Uh, nobody who is a Christian has not come to a place of repentance. Uh, salvation is, happens when we repent in large measure. And so when we talk about repentance, we're talking about a twin turning. First, you must turn away from the bad thing, sin, but you must also turn towards and embrace the good thing, righteousness. And so when Jesus is talking about, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, he's talking about the first turning in the twin turning of repentance. He's saying, blessed are those who grieve over their sinfulness, who go, oh, I don't want that anymore. 
But if that's all you ever did, that wouldn't be repentance, that would be regret. Regret and repentance are different. Because repentance doesn't just mean, I regret that. It also means, I love this. <laughs> and so Jesus now turns the corner and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So there's that idea of the twin turning. Also, we started by talking about how when Jesus begins, when he begins this, this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he starts by saying, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts, before there can be a filling, there must be an emptying. Before we can ever come to Jesus and, and accept the gospel, we must come to a place of confessing that we do not have the resources to address our greatest need. We, we bring God nothing but empty hands, empty-handed need. This is like when Jesus says, uh, unless you become like a, a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that word for little child, pahideon, in the Greek means like an infant, like Oliver. He, he can't feed himself. He can't burp himself. <laughs> he can't do anything. Unless you come to Jesus like that, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have come to realize that they are full of need, that they don't have the resources to meet. Because then your needs will be perfectly satisfied in God. So what we learned in the first lesson is that's justification. Justification is when God, simply in a once-for-all transaction, declares you not guilty. That's the first thing. And that's what Jesus, I think, is really speaking about when in the first beatitude. But now something follows on the heels of justification, and that is sanctification. Again, I'm using a lot of churchy-sounding words, forgive me. Uh, I don't know any other word for it. Uh, but sanctification, if justification is when God declares you not guilty, sanctification is when you begin the process of living differently. And, and this is really the proof and the product of somebody who has been justified. If somebody has been saved, if they have truly put their trust in Jesus for salvation, the Bible says that they become a new creation. They are transformed. They will live differently. They will treasure differently. The, the, their heart's passions and affections will be oriented differently than before. And what that manifests then is in a different way of living, a transformed way of living. And that change over time, as we become like the God who saved us, is called sanctification. Justification is a once-for-all event. Sanctification is a process that follows that event. And here when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is talking, I think, about the spirit that motivates and spurs us on in our efforts in sanctification. And so I want you to see this, that what Jesus is describing is, uh, is logical, it's sequential almost. That might be the wrong word, but one, they do follow one another in a logical way. There's a thread of reason here that we need to see. And when Jesus talks about righteousness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who have hunger and thirst for righteousness. When it comes to justification, what we're talking about in your hungering is that you hunger and thirst for a person. What, what you need is not a new way of living to begin with. What you need in the beginning is a savior, 
right? And so, like, for example, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the living water, hunger, thirst, bread, water, the clear statement Jesus is making is not that you have something, I have something that you need, but he's saying, I am what you need. And so when we first come to this statement, hunger and thirst for righteousness, I want you to first understand it, first and most importantly, most foundationally, what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for me. (laughs) I am what you need, not something I have in my power to bestow. I don't want you to come to me and do business with me to get what you really want. No, that's not the way this whole Christianity thing works. It's about acquiring Jesus. For example, in Psalm 37, where it says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's describing a thirsting for God himself. And this is the first and most important way to understand this. But also then, that's justification. That's the first, that's the entry point into a saving faith. And you are saved by that alone. But then what naturally follows is a hungering and thirsting to be like the God that I hunger and thirst for. (laughs) I don't know if I'm talking in circles or not making sense here, but this is what Jesus, I think, is saying if we understand the fullness of this statement. If we understand it as first, a hungering and thirsting for God, it is also true that what follows is a hungering and thirsting to be like the God we hunger and thirst for. (laughs) Okay, good. We'll move on. One of the things that is so interesting for me to think about in connection with this verse is the way that Jesus uses our physical experience of hunger for food and thirst for water to illustrate the way a Christian longs in their spirit for Christ and Christ's likeness. Humans are not purely flesh. And man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Brothers and sisters, we have physical needs, and we have spiritual needs. And we should be aware of the way that our bodies affect our spirits and vice versa. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, in a passage that comes after the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? What's he speaking to there? He's speaking to anxiety over our physical needs. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? And then he says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And by that he means unbelievers, those who don't know God. Non-believers seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, I think, and I don't want to read too much into what Jesus is saying. We're going to explore this further on as we dive in here. But the, 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 the great Uh, horrible, tragic miscalculation of the world is that they have elevated what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, physical appetites, the material, the here and now, what we can see with our eyes, they have elevated that in importance over the kingdom of God and his righteousness with tragic results. Tragic results. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. 
you need to be different than the surrounding culture. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Unbelievers seek after all these things as though it's the sum total of life's purpose. And your heavenly father knows that you need to eat. Your heavenly father knows you need to pay your bills. But as a matter of first importance, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here's a verse that talks about how the spirit affects the body. You remember after the story in the Old Testament of how David, he has this horrible affair with a woman named Bathsheba. He tries to cover it up. It's hidden for a while. David, reflecting on that period of time after his sin, but before it's become public and he's repented, in Psalm 32, he says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's a a passage that speaks to David's spirit having an impact on his physical body. And of course, the opposite is also true. How many of you know the story of Esau and the bowl of stew, right? A guy who, because of his great hunger, sells his birthright, sells his place in redemptive history. Or what about Philippians 3.19 describes the wicked this way, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see, there's the, the, the headlong pursuit of their physical appetites, the material, the here and now, has had a disastrous consequence playing out in their spirits. Incidentally, we have seen in clear relief the the, the tension that exists within us, concern for our physical bodies and concern for our spirits in the church over the past 18 months, have we not? Over the course of this pandemic, uh, we have had a rightful, elevated concern for people's bodies. Isn't this true? We have participated as best as we can in a coordinated regional effort to stop, slow the spread of a virus that has potential lethal consequences. But part of the tension we've felt in the church and have tried to navigate, imperfectly I'm sure, is how do we stop the spread of a virus without stopping being the church? How, how do we... How do we demonstrate a concern for people's physical health without neglecting their spirits? Is it healthy and good for people to drift away for prolonged periods of time? How, how will we weigh the concerns with the pandemic, the virus, against fidelity to biblical commands that we gather like this? It's been a real hard season. And at the center of that difficulty, and again, very grateful for a wonderful community of leadership that has helped shoulder the burden of that process. Over the, the, what has really been at the center of that is this tension between physical bodies and spirits. We're neither purely one or the other. The physical realities are real and concerning. So too are the spiritual ones. These things become very difficult for that very reason. The Bible tells us that we are flesh and spirit. 
In the creation account, we are told that the first man, Adam, was made from the dust of the earth. He was formed and shaped and physical to the touch, and God breathed life into him, visible and invisible, flesh and spirit. And this is not to say that humans are mongrel hybrid creatures, like Achilles in Greek mythology, as though he's half God, half man. That's not true. Of course not. We are not half dirt person and half spirit being. We are not some unholy mingling of these two elements. That would not be a correct way to view yourself. Definitionally speaking, this is what you are. Human beings are embodied souls. That's what it is to be a human. To be purely spirit as God is, or purely flesh like an earthworm, would make you something other than what you were created to be. You are now, and always will be, even in eternity, an embodied soul. On the last day, the Bible tells us that we will be raised bodily, and even in eternity, we are told, we will be given new glorified bodies. Again, you are now, and always will be, an embodied soul. However, because of the fall, our inner world is deeply broken and and fractured. It is a place where the appetites of your flesh war with your spirits for supremacy in your hearts and minds. The word hunger and thirst, for many things, those words hunger and thirst are descriptive of a longing that is so powerful It feels desperate and necessary. It is a gnawing pang, an uncomfortable awareness of something's absence that not only doesn't go away, but it actually gets worse and more intense until you do something to relieve or satisfy it. And human beings feel that kind of panicky, deep, gnawing pang, hunger for a thing's absence, for food, for water, for a person, for an experience. I think I have sat and talked with people who felt this kind of hunger and thirst to be married, to have children. I think when somebody is really longing for a person who has died or who they wish had were, they were romantically involved with but doesn't seem interested in them, there is a hungering and a thirsting for that. I've grown up in a very privileged way in that I've not experienced much of physical hunger or thirst, but I have flirted with the edges of that enough (laughs) to know what that might be like. We might hunger and thirst for lots of different things, for fame, for applause, for your parents' approval, whatever it might be. We hunger, we thirst. And I want you to see that these words that Jesus is using can be applied to things other than what is right and good. When I talk about a longing that is so powerful it feels desperate and necessary, a gnawing pang, an uncomfortable awareness that does not go away and it grows more intense, this can become attached to things that are not worthy of it. And part of what the Bible calls us to as Jesus followers is to begin now, to begin now, today, what will be fully realized on the last day, 
which is to submit our bodies to the things of the Spirit, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and see what comes, see what follows. Consider just a couple verses here. Romans 8, 5 through 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Or what about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20? Uh, Paul was writing this into a culture that was steeped in sexual sin. And sexual longing in a human being is something that can best be characterized, perhaps, as a hungering and thirsting. And what he says here is very interesting. He says to these uh, believers in Corinth, this hypersexualized culture, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I, last week, I pointed out the connection between Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4 and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and really there is a connection between a couple of them, uh, and this week is another one. Uh, we're talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Last week, we, last week we talked about how Satan uh, tempted Jesus, I'll give you the earth if you will self-exalt, and Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we saw a connection there between the two. And this week, when we're talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, look at how Satan tempted Jesus back in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the de devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. One of the greatest understatements in all the Bible. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this moment, this thing that Satan was tempting Jesus to do was to elevate his physical appetites over spiritual things. We see this tension between the appetites of the flesh, the appetites of the spirit in so many Bible passages, and it is at the root of nearly every temptation, and it is part of the picture when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As we have observed all along in this study of the Beatitudes, the whole world is seeking after happiness. It's almost like an understatement so clear, so undeniably true that it doesn't need to be even pointed out. Every human being wants to be happy, and nearly everything we do is designed to achieve that in some measure. Happiness is the great motive behind every act and ambition, behind every project, plan, and effort. You will find a person who believes that some measure of happiness is to be found on the other side. Even somebody who goes into a job that they hate does it because they want payday. <laughs> they do it because they want happiness. We do a lot of unpleasant things believing that it will bring us happiness. Nearly all that we do, we do because we want to be happy. In fact, it's written right into the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-evident, inalienable, of course it's true. We feel the weight of those words, and although they're not the Bible, I agree with them. However, here's the mysterious thing. You would think, you would, that with everyone wanting to be happy, and with everyone pursuing happiness, and living as we do in a society that gives each individual the absolute freedom, and in many cases the means, to seek happiness in whatever floats their boat, that we find so few who are finding a lasting happiness. Normally what people practice a lot, they get good at. So why are so people so bad at finding what is so central to their pursuits? Why is happiness so elusive in a lasting way? For so many people, happiness is that moment before they are unsatisfied again. <laughs> How, why are we so bad at this thing that is at the very center of what we do? Here's the answer, I think. Here's where it all goes wrong. This is the horrible, fundamental miscalculation people make. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's first emphasize what Jesus did not say we should hunger and thirst for. Now, I'm willing to bet that I know what some of you are thinking right now. When I say let's first emphasize what Jesus did not say we should hunger and thirst for, you probably think, Josh Tate, you're a predictable hack. Here's what you're going to say. That I'm going to say something like we shouldn't hunger and thirst for sinful things, right? Well, that's actually not what I'm going to say. That's true, of course. We should not. But that's a fairly obvious observation, and in fact, there is something more deceptively foundational even than that. I would say that that flows out of a, a prerequisite error. It's true, of course, we should not hunger and thirst for wicked things, but there is a more fundamental error that if we never see it, we will be doomed to living out our days unsatisfied and unhappy. The tragic miscalculation that so many people, both in the church and in the world, are making today and thereby missing it is not that they are hungering and thirsting for wicked things, but that they have been deceived into hungering and thirsting for happiness itself. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be blessed. Do you see where we're going here? This is a more fundamental truth. This is a more foundational miscalculation kind of an error. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, happiness is found in the pursuit of something other than happiness. And one of the biggest miscalculations a human being can make is saying, I am going to make the great aim and goal of all my pursuits the acquisition of happiness. 
Perversely, if a person makes happiness the supreme goal of their life, they will inevitably miss it and stray into all kinds of sad, broken, wicked, sinful things. You see, if that's the end, then the means justify the end. According to the Bible, happiness is never something that we should seek directly. It is always a thing that results from seeking something else. Test me in this. Go to your Bible. See where God ever says, go for happiness with everything you've got as though nothing else matters. (laughs) That's something our culture might say. But that's not what God says. God says, seek after me and you will find happiness. God says, seek after righteousness and you will find happiness. God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But he never says, go for this thing as the matter of first importance. So happiness comes as a result of seeking something else. And Jesus tells us precisely what that something else is. It's righteousness. So whenever people put happiness before righteousness, they will be doomed to misery. I suppose, just to illustrate it, this would be a lot like the difference between someone who hungers and thirsts for work and somebody who hungers and thirsts for money. There is a difference there, isn't there? Money will come as a result of finding gainful employment, but if you just want money any way, shape, or for any way you can get your hands on it, that might lead into some pretty dicey behavior, <laughs> right? And, or we could illustrate it this way. Think of a person who is really sick with a very painful illness. Generally speaking, whenever someone is suffering from something, uh, an illness, painful thing like that, what they want is to feel good again. They want relief. But what would you think of a doctor who was only concerned about relieving your pain and not treating the underlying causes of the pain. This is precisely like someone who hungers and thirsts for happiness. They want relief. Who cares why I feel dissatisfied to begin with? Obviously, it would be silly if a doctor merely treated the pain and not the underlying cause of the pain, and it is silly. It's absurd. We look weird from God's perspective, I'm sure, seeking happiness while ignoring the root causes of all unhappiness. The disease will get worse. The pain will reemerge again and again, and it will intensify and grow stronger if we don't treat the disease. But we just keep applying the, the narcotic of worldly pleasure to numb the pain out. I think a lot of people are just drowning their unhappiness by scrolling or drinking or by pursuing all kinds of things. And it might numb, it might bring relief for a time, but doesn't it come roaring back in again on the other side once you dare sober up? And it's stronger. And it's gnawing. And so you go right back into this repetitive, destructive cycle. That medical scenario is absurd. No doctor worth his salt would take that approach, but that is precisely, I think, the error that so many are entering into today. They want happiness, 
but they don't want to treat the underlying causes of their unhappiness, namely sin. They think, I want to feel good, I want to get rid of all this pain, but the question the great physician poses in our consultation this morning is not, how can we go about numbing your discomfort, but rather, what are the root causes of all your unhappiness? Let's treat that and see what comes when we do. Brothers and sisters, we have sought happiness in so many different things. Have you really given yourself to testing what Jesus says in this statement? Is it true, Jesus, that happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? I've sought happiness in lots of places, but have I really sought it there? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. Boy, isn't that a great word. We've all been seeking happiness our whole life, but until we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it will continue to elude us. I don't want that to be true for me or for my children or my brothers and sisters here at State Road Advent Christian Church or for you if you are listening online. And so I think it's really important for us to see what Jesus is saying here. Happiness is found not in the pursuit of happiness, but in the pursuit of something else. And that something else is Jesus himself and in imitating his example, being like him. So until we give ourselves to the pursuit of Jesus and, his, and Christ's likeness, we will not be satisfied and we will not be happy. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus made a statement that is clear and unambiguous, and we have heard and understood you this morning. But God, having heard and understood you, we now need something more. Father, we do not, in our own powers, have the resources even to act upon this in a, in a prolonged way. Father, we see that happiness does not come by making happiness the great central aim or goal of our lives. It comes, Lord, through the pursuit of other things, through the righteous one and through his character. And so, God, I pray that as we go out from this place this morning, you would continue this conversation in the quiet places of our heart. And more than that, God, you would give us the power by the Holy Spirit to act on this. God, give us a, a hunger and a thirst for you. Father, as it says in Psalm 37, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. God, would you give us that deep soul longing for you? Father, we confess that very often we hunger and thirst for things apart from you, and the great tragedy of mankind is not that we want to be happy, but that we have sought happiness in things that tragically bring us misery. So, Father, I pray, Lord, you would help us to turn away from the numbing narcotic of earthly delights, flesh, things of the flesh, and, God, that we would find a better and an abiding happiness in the pursuit of righteousness and the righteous one. God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for showing us these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.